If you would look with me in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and some, just some simple things out of Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to go to chapter 11 in a moment, but I do want to make reference uh, in the early part of the book as well. The book of Ecclesiastes is the record of a man who had spent many years trying to find the purpose of life. And I've mentioned some time ago, I think on a Wednesday night, that I've been reading Ecclesiastes a lot over the last several months, just reading through it over and over and over again. And uh, there's so much in there, and, and I, I haven't unlocked all that. I'm just getting some great thoughts and gleanings from it for my own life. But, but, I, but I think that summarizes what the, the book is about. It's, it's Solomon writing down his experience of trying to find out what the purpose and meaning of life is. And to read it properly, we have to understand that a great deal of what is written in Ecclesiastes were the reflections of a carnal heart. And by that I mean, when you read Ecclesiastes, not everything in there is what God, how God wants you to live. There are things written here that were showing us how Solomon was living that was not working. And he, he wanted to make a record of that. And so it seems that Solomon's relationship with God through many of his early years was similar to where many people, even in the church today, are living, and that is that God is real, but He's distant. He's impersonal. He's not actually a part of my real world, my day-to-day. That, that's kind of how Solomon was living his life. He was, not a, he was not an infidel. He believed in God. His father David had been the great king of Israel and had taught him to trust in the Lord. Solomon believed, but... He lived far from God for many years. Anyone familiar with Ecclesiastes would know that the summary of Solomon's views prior to the end of the book is this, all of life is vanity, right? That's, that's what he says over and over again. It's just empty, empty. It, it, it has no purpose. I've tried. Nothing has satisfied. Nothing's fulfilling me. And you have to read no further than the first couple of chapters to get a sense of how Solomon feels about life. He outlines for us how he had lived his earliest years as a young man and even his early years as king, seeking for something to satisfy the emptiness of his life. Now, I want you to think this morning, again, to all of us, I want us to look at our life and say, and honestly in our heart, how am I living? Am I living more like the early Solomon or am I living more like Solomon at the end of this book who draws down on the conclusion of life? Because Solomon is chasing all kinds of things. Now, he believes in God. He, he goes to the, the temple, okay? You understand what I'm saying. This isn't a heathen guy. Although, when you read some of the stuff he talks about, he lives some heathen ways. But here's the thing about him. He still spends all these years trying to find something to fill up the void of his life. And I wonder how many people sit on church pews every single Sunday and are in the same condition. They believe in God, but their, their life is empty. Their heart is void of fulfillment and completion, and life is not making sense, and it's not satisfying. It goes back to that word enthusiasm, God in you see, Solomon knew about God and believed in God, but God wasn't in Solomon. Solomon wasn't in God. And he tells us in chapter 2, he gives us a, a kind of an outline here. 
of the things he tried. I'm not reading all this. I just want you to see that he, he says in verses 1 through 3 that he sought pleasures. Pleasures. He, he sought to do things that would make him happy, make him feel good. You know, he describes chasing after laughter and drinking wine and, and living it up, the party life. And it might not be the party life that we seek our pleasure in. Our pleasure may be to seek it in our other hobbies, things that we might otherwise call good things, but we're seeking something in them that only God can give. By the way, anytime you do that, that's idolatry. And good things become idols when we seek from them what only God can give. He mentions possessions in verses 4 through 11. He made great works, built houses, planted vineyards. He had many servants. And he thought, if I can get more stuff, then life will make sense and I'll feel fulfilled. Now, we may not say that or admit it, but a lot of us live that way, don't we? We got to go shopping and get more stuff. I don't have enough stuff. I, you know, I, I, it would just be better if I, I need to go get me one of these. I'm trying so hard to make it through a service without an Andy reference, but we're just like Rafe Hollister. Remember when they were having that sale in the courthouse? And Rafe said, uh, he's looking at that contraption, he says, how much for this? And Andy said, a uh, dollar or two dollars. Rafe said, well, what is it? And Andy said, well, if I knew that, I'd have to charge you three. And Rafe said, well, that sounds like a deal. I always did want one of these, and he buys it and leaves. Now, we live like that, don't we? Consume, consume. So it was pleasure and possessions. And then, now this sounds better, he sought wisdom. Verse 12 through verse 17. Give me wisdom. Help me uh, learn. Help me have knowledge and understanding. And that's one of the things Solomon is known for. He's known for God saying, ask, ask me what you want. And Solomon prayed for wisdom. I don't remember who it was. I heard one preacher say that that might have not been the best thing for Solomon to ask for. What he might have should have asked for was a heart like his father's. To love God. But wisdom didn't do it, and he goes on to work in verse 18 through verse 23. Yea, I hated all my labor. He's describing all the work he had done. And in the end, he said, it was unfulfilling too. And I tell you, there are people right now that are tra chasing fulfillment through their careers, through progressing, through getting the next promotion, through making it big. And, and I've said it a hundred times. I want to say it again. There's absolutely nothing wrong with applying uh, one principle you'll find in Ecclesiastes, which is whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. When you marry that with what Paul says, that we do all to the glory of God. But that's not why it's not working in your life. The reason your career isn't producing fulfillment in your life is because you're doing it unto the glory of, of self, not the glory of God. You're seeking gain for you, not to please God. And so it doesn't work, just like it didn't work for Solomon. This view of life under the sun, as he calls it, uh, leaves him desperate and angry at times. And, and I think a good word to describe much of Solomon's early views about life and, and, and really the spirit of our culture today is he had a jaded soul. You know that term, right? Jaded. He's just, he's jaded. She's jaded. He, Solomon had a jaded soul. Now I've heard and used that word, and I've always understood it to mean somebody that's bitter, somebody that's been hardened by life. The way a person becomes in their soul when life's not working out the way they wanted it to. And, and this inner condition of being jaded and disappointed, it manifests itself in different ways in different people's lives. Uh, that word 
uh, can manifest itself in, in somebody that's just fatigued and tired all the time. Just have no energy for living. Somebody who's bored with life. It shows itself in apathy. I just don't care anymore. It shows itself in being cynical. Always just negative about everybody and everything. And we have to be careful about uh, being jaded in our heart and on the inside. I, I found that jade is a term uh, that's used. I, I've never heard, I don't think, but some of you that are maybe more familiar with farming and old farming, that the word jade... Uh, is a word that would be used for a mean or tired horse. Another way of saying it was a, a worthless nag. Now, I've known some of them in my life. Some of them have gone to church with us over the years, haven't they? Jaded people. And Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2.11, Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. And listen to me now, if this becomes your life now, don't fool yourself into thinking that, well, when I get older or when I get the job or when I get married or when I, you know, that then I'll feel better and life will be good. No, it won't. You'll just be an older, more jaded person. Because if you set your affections on the things of this earth and this life, you will not have the treasure of God in your heart. You'll only grow more jaded, more fatigued, more bored with life, more apathetic, more cynical, and you'll just become an old, cynical, jaded person. Solomon understood the danger, and that's why he gave us this book. He wrote it out very raw and very real, and he didn't hide that he had lived his life that way because he wants us to learn the lesson at the end. This book is an account of the struggle within the soul, the battle between what we might call the self-life and the spiritual life. And life under the sun is life without God. It is life at its shallowest level. And this self-life, Solomon tells us, is a very sad life. Fortunately, that's not where Solomon leaves us. That's not where he concludes this thing. Because the very last verses of the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Don't you love those verses in the Bible that just kind of summarize everything in a verse? What did the Lord require of thee? And you take a verse like that, it's just like, this is what God wants. It's simple. He's not wanting to make life hard for us. And, and what you boil it all down to, what Solomon says and what Micah was giving us and what Jesus taught us is that what God wants is for you to simply live in Him and give yourself wholly to Him. Find everything in Him. Let everything else go. He'll bring all the stuff you need. You know, all those verses, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Because the reality is, now right now it might not be huge and looming, but as you grow older and go further, you start thinking about, well, how am I going to provide for myself? Or how, uh, you know, well, what am I gonna, how am I going to make it in life? Where will all the things come from that we need? God says, Jesus said, trust God, follow me, and all that stuff will be taken care of. God closed the grass of the field, the next day it gets mowed down. Think about that. You know what God does? He reclothes it. He puts fresh flowers again. That's how God works. So Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us, this is the whole duty of man. But he says, remember, 
God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And he constantly reminds us that we will give an account to God for how we live. You know, practical atheists, which is largely, the ranks of, the, of practical atheism are largely filled by Christians. And practical atheists live as though God is not actually real. They say he is, they claim that he is, but they live their daily life, God has no part in it. He's relegated to hours of the week. And, and that's it. Solomon learned later in life that he's offered us in this book this intensive course on the secret of living a truly good life. And it is this. Life really is what you let God make of it. That's, that's what he's telling us in this book, and, and it's in the whole book. Life really is what you let God make of it. So we're instructed to invest in life. If you look at chapter 11, where I'll draw the primary text this morning, if you look at chapter 11, it begins with this whole thing of telling us how to invest in life. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. He's talking about investing. He's talking about you taking you and who you are and invest in your life. Now we could stop right there and talk about something that we all agree on, which is God expects us to do something. You've got to do something in life. To get something, you've got to do something. That's how it works. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. In other words, if you just look at all the circumstances all the time and say, well, I, I, things just aren't, they're just not the way I want them to be right now. I, I'm just going to step back and hold on and, and see if it changes. Well, number one, it will change. By the time that change comes, it may be too late, and you may have missed that opportunity. God is, is saying to us through Solomon here, invest in your life. Get in there. Do something about life. Don't just sit there. Get out there and do something. I don't know about you, but I'm not a sideline guy. I mean, at a party, I'm fine. You know, a gathering of people, I'll be fine over, you know. But when, when there's an event happening, if there's a game going on, I'm not a sideline guy. I want to be a part of it. I want to have a role in what's happening. And this is the kind of heart God wants us to have when it comes to our life. Don't just let life happen around you. Go out there in the power of God and live it well. You have that choice every day of your life. In our text this morning, there are three words that will help us discern the path to a meaningful life. Let me read these verses and see if you can pick them out. Verse number 9. Rejoice. O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, and put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them." In this that I've read, there are these three words that tell us that God is the one who makes life make sense and makes life wonderful, but He's given us some responsibility in this as well. 
And we're invited into this partnership with God. And so there's three words here that Solomon gives us that I want to point out. Rejoice, remove, and remember. Very simple. Very simple. And they're right there on the page in front of us. Rejoice, remove, and remember. Rejoice. What is this about? Life is a wonderful gift. Life is a wonderful gift, and and these years that you've been given, they are time to prepare for eternity. I said it earlier, you are becoming now what you will be for all eternity. And we're to prepare and we're to rejoice in these days that we've been given and not squander them. How many days have we squandered? How many hours have we squandered in our life? Too many, too many, too many. I know mine better than I know yours, and I say too many, too many. We're not to squander them and waste them on uselessness of life under the sun. Life under the sun is the shallow life where all we see is this, and we forget about all of that that God is sending our way. Rejoice. This word for rejoice, it literally means brighten up. It it means to be glad on purpose. Now that tells me something. Now I'm going to confess, this ain't easy preaching for me. Because all this stuff is is dealing with my own heart. There are times that circumstances aren't good and life doesn't feel good and we would rather be somewhere else. And yet we're told to rejoice. We're to be glad on purpose. We're to make merry. We're to celebrate. Well, that'll, that'll counter some of the mully grubs, won't it? That'll counter the jadedness of our life. You think about it, what are the youth often accused of? Their teenage years, their college years, what are they accused of? Rebellion, they're a bunch of complainers, they're grumpy. The truth is, that's not the mark of youth. That's the mark of any life at any age that is out of touch with the joy of the Lord. That's what that is. And and David said in Psalm 119, verse 1 and 2, Blessed or happy are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed or happy are they that keep his testimonies. And get this, and seek him with the whole heart. Now let's just talk real honest here why we're not happy. You want to know why you're not happy on any given Sunday, Monday, Tuesday? You want to know why you're not happy? You're not seeking God with all your heart. It is impossible. To seek the Lord with your whole heart and not be happy. Now, I don't know anybody that's got that perfected. But I do know this. I know when we're not happy, that tells me I have one thing I should be doing. I should be turning my whole heart towards seeking God so I can get out of that. And I can have the blessedness of God in my soul again. C.S. Lewis believed that more often than not, we shortchange our lives and ourselves by settling for less than what God intends for us. And many of you are familiar with this pretty famous statement by Lewis. We, we often think about it when we think about the desires of our heart and pursuing joy in life. He said, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now think about your own life. If you're having a bad day, okay, 
having a bad day. Having a really bad day. I'm about to freeze somebody. No? I thought somebody would get that reference. Okay, Josiah got that reference. Having a really bad day. Think with me now. Let me bring you back together. We're having a really bad day. You're having a really bad day. You get one shot at something to lift you out of it. What do you go for? Now, be honest. I'm having a really bad day. All right? At the snap of my finger, you're going to get the thing that will make you forget it all and feel better. What was it for you? Because the truth of the matter is that if the answer is anything but let me run to God, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God, when will I come and appear before God? If that's not our answer, we have idols in our life. Can I go ahead and say it? There are idols in our life. That's why we're charged with bringing those things down. And that's why God calls them out in our life to say, that is an idol. It will never give you what only I can give you. Sometimes life just floods with good times and good things and being excited and thankful comes easy. But most of the time, we need to understand this thing of rejoicing the way Paul did, who wrote from the prison cell, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He knew this, that to rejoice is a choice. To rejoice is a choice. You always have to choose it. I want to specifically address the text here before I give you the next word. Solomon says about this rejoicing, um, because it is, it is true wisdom for life. Verse 9 again, rejoice, O young man, O young lady, in thy youth. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. What, what Solomon is counseling here is I would call it walk in disciplined desire. Now I want to explain that. He says, young lady, young man, I have learned this, that God puts desires in our hearts. But only, only if I had only learned earlier in life to pursue the God-given desire in the God-ordained ways, my life would be richer and fuller and actually bigger now than it is. You see, we have this constant conflict in, in, in verse 9 where, where we all have desires in our heart. But we've had this We've had this conflict with, in the religious world, being told, kill that desire. Desire is of the flesh. Well, there are desires of the flesh. But there are also desires of the heart. Well, you can't trust your heart, preacher. Why not? I got a new heart when I got born again. He took out the old heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. It's a heart crafted by God. I'm a new creature, a new creation. I have a new heart. I can live from that heart. You can live from that heart so long as you are a follower of Jesus. And so that conflict is there. We, we know we have these desires. I, 
boy, this, this makes me come alive. I, I love this doing this. And then over here we've been told, don't do that. Serve God. All right, I'm going to say something, and I'm just going to be just, just, just honest about it. You want to know, I sat, in, recently I sat in a service with young people, and I listened to a message that basically told them that if you really want to serve God, you'll be a pastor, a missionary, or a preacher's wife, or a Christian school teacher. And then if you can't do that, then, you know, you, know, you can at least witness to people on your job. I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world is wrong with people? I watched a group of young people like this. Don't follow desire. Kill that heart. Serve God. Why would anybody want to serve God under those terms? But if somehow that heart that rises in me that has loves and joys and desires and dreams, if that can be matched with God and I can serve God in my desires, then I've got something. Then I've got something. Don't kill desire, consecrate desire before God. Let me give you a second word, remove, okay? Remove. He says, therefore, remove sorrow from thy heart, put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Here he is saying, don't let the losses and the griefs define you or control you. They're going to come, but you learn from them and then you let them go. You resist bitterness and anger in all its forms, even the righteous kind. Well, I'm just righteously indignant about this. Yeah, you sound like it. Sounds more like you're just righteously indignant about your offended self, right? So, so we're, we're told all the time, push that stuff away, not embrace it. Being angry never got anybody anywhere except in trouble. He said, what about that righteous anger Jesus had? Well, when you learn to live like Jesus and get angry, I'll trust your anger. But until then, most of the anger I've seen and most all the anger I've had didn't come from a righteous place. So he says, resist that stuff. Remove that stuff from your life. This word remove, it literally means to turn it off. Now, we can make a lot of application right there, couldn't we? There's a lot of off buttons we probably need to push in our life. Yes. All of us probably need to put some off on in our life. But it literally means to turn it off, and it means to decline it. There are some things that come our way in life that we need to say no thank you to. Bitterness, anger, fear, jealousy, the jaded life. We need to say, no thank you, I don't want that, I choose to rejoice. That's, that's the connection. And in this verse itself, Solomon nails it. He gives us two things we need to turn off and decline and refuse to carry in our hearts. Now, I warn you, these are simple, but they're not easy. You've heard them your whole life. And they're simple, but they're not easy. They're often heard, but they are so lightly esteemed. Now, what are they? The first thing we must turn off or remove is sorrow from the heart. Can I just pause a moment and say, we act like victims all the time, don't we? Well, I can't help the way I feel. I, you don't know what they did to me. 
And yet when I read my Bible, I find over and over and over and over and over again, we actually have a choice about that. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Whoa, we got a choice. I don't have to just be afraid and angry. And here he says, remove sorrow from your heart. He's talking about the wounds, okay? That's the first thing he's talking about, the wounds in our life. Remove them. It's the word that means the, the, the sorrow, remove the sorrow. It's a word that means that which vexes you on the inside. So again, anger, grief, sorrow, wrath, these things cause our heart on the inside to, to just be crushed and to be sorrowful. Now, we're not to bury these things, which is what a lot of people do. Well, just cover it up. Just cover it up and move on and, and just, just don't worry about it anymore. Have you ever um, been on a long walk and got a rock in your shoe? Now, if you're like me, this is a problem. I, don't, I know, I'm just going to own it. I don't want to stop and get that rock out of my shoe. We've got to make time. We've got to get these miles behind us. And then what happens over time is that rock makes your foot sore, and if you're not careful, you're going to end up with a blister, and you're going to have major problems, right? And then 99 times out of 100, when you do stop and take the shoe off, it feels like the rock is that big. And when you take your shoe off, it's like a little grain of sand in there. Right? But that little thing just left in there causes so much damage and hurt. And, and it feels so huge. And if we would have just got rid of it at the beginning. That's how Solomon says, do your life. Cut this thing out now. Don't hold on to this. Don't live with that grief. Don't live with that anger. Don't live with that resentment. But do away with it. Cast it out. Remove it. The wounds. There are some things that have hurt you. There are some things right now that do hurt you. And there will be things in life that will hurt you. You've got to get rid of them. You've got to let it go. And you do that by learning what Peter meant when he said, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. The emphasis of that verse is not your cares emphasis of that verse is he careth for you if we can learn to live like that oh change everything the other thing he says to put away not only the wounds but the world he says put away evil from thy flesh and i'm gonna tell you in one word what that means separate 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 get out of the world and and i gotta tell you all this week i've been getting this word from the lord Get away from the world. That, that's been God speaking to me this week. And, and I saw it again right there. So he's saying it to you too. James 4. Now look, I know it's time to be done with service, okay? But, but look at it as an illustration of where our hearts are when we become restless in the, the matters of God and His Word. Where is our heart? Where is our attention and our affection? It really is calling us in. Now listen to this, this passage I'm about to read. James 4, verses 4 and 6. Not my words, okay? Not my words. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? 
Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. What James says to us in that passage is, is that when we become friendly with the world, we have become hostile toward God. Now that makes me ask a question, what is the world? Because I don't want to be a friend with the world. Not if it's going to make me on the wrong side of things with God. And when I look at what this thing of the world is and where my line of separation should be, the world is the culture of idolatry that calls us to turn away from God and to look to other sources of provision and protection and peace. The world is a conglomeration of false comforters. I'm not talking about people. They're often just voice, voice pieces. God loves all people. God loves every sinner. God doesn't hate them. God loves creation. He made it. It's beautiful and it's wonderful and we can embrace it and enjoy it. But what God hates is idolatry. And he says that anybody sitting in the church who turns away from trusting God 100% for everything in their life and begins to look to the system of the world to provide for them and to take care of them, you are a spiritual adulterer or adulteress. And you are hostile toward God. Now, now James didn't write that to lost people. James wrote that to the church. James, the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Boy, that would have been an interesting service to set in, wouldn't it? I want to tell you this with all my being and all my heart. Now, listen to a 45-year-old man who has scarred his soul from too much exposure to the world. Learn early to leave it alone. Learn early to separate from it because the longer you go down this path where, and, and I'm talking about in the church, it, it, it's okay. It's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. You're just, you're just having fun. There's nothing wrong with that. They just need to calm down. You just go on and do that. Have fun. Dress down. Go ahead. Reveal your flesh. Be sensual. Young lady stuff. Come on. This is 2022. This ain't 1922. Learn early to shut your ears to that kind of bad counsel that will destroy your life. Turn it off of the television and learn that early because it gets harder once you've let it take hold. Turn it off of the radio. Turn it off of the computer. Walk away from the, the conversations. Do not be in close companionship with those who walk in that. Live a Psalm 1 life. It'll be much easier to do that now than to have to do it later. I read it again this morning, and I'm going to close. 1 Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Your soul is the prize. God's after it. The devil's after it. And God's word to you is abstain from all that stuff that puts you on the, on the losing end in this battle for your soul. Just abstain from it. Now here's the last word. Remember. Remember. Rejoice, remove, 
And then remember. Now Solomon, when he says that at the beginning of chapter 12, he, he says, remember your Creator in the days of your youth while the days come not that you have no more any pleasure in them. Now I'm just going to tell you what he describes in those next few verses is old age. Where the eyes aren't working so good, the ears aren't picking up signal so good, the teeth may not be home anymore. The body is bowed low and the strength is gone. And he says, don't wait till that time to say, I better get right with God. I better give my heart to God. I better be serious about serving God. Because you're going to look back on a life of vanity and say, I wasted it. And it matters. You know that old thief on the cross? He got gloriously saved, right? He trusted in Jesus on the cross, and he went to eternity with Jesus. He's there now. But you know he had a wasted life. Thank God it was redeemed in Jesus, amen? And it will be. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every one of us who are followers of Jesus will stand before the judgment seat one day, and we will not want to stand there and try to offer some penny any excuse about why we lived for self all of these years and did not take up the cross and follow him. Don't do that. Now, uh, remember simply means this. It's a word found over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. It says, make a mark so you can remember. Make a mark. Put your mark on something. Mark something so that it can be recognized. It, it, the ways it was used in the Bible is they would make a memorial or they would build an altar. They would write it down. It was ways to remember the works of God in their life so they would not forget God. And I got to tell you, two good ways to do that. We looked at Psalm 78 not long ago, remember? And the big problem was they kept forgetting God and they kept getting in trouble. And you forget God, you will be in trouble. You forget God, your life's going to be filled with trouble. We remember God by being very intentional about it. This morning we gave you a couple of tools to help with that. You've got a, a great book to help you learn life with God. And you've received a, a, a life planning journal tool that every day you could open up and you could make a mark about what God did in your life today. What God said to you today how you experience God today. And I'm telling you, the more marks you make for God, the better off you'll be, the stronger you'll be. You can write it down, you can testify, but I'm telling you, make your life a living memorial to the glory of God every day and in every way remembering Him. Well, I'm going to ask everyone to stand this morning. My final word to our graduates is this. God first is a must in your life. God first is a must in your life. Paul calls it in Colossians 1.18 preeminence. That in all things, Jesus is to have preeminence in your life. Now, let me explain that. Throughout your life, you'll be surrounded by many people in church who believe in God and they give God a place in their life. There will be a smaller crowd of people to whom God is prominent in their life. Not just relegated to church and stuff, but, you know, they're, they're, they're seeking. And then there'll be an even smaller group for whom God is preeminent in their life. He is their life. 
And my word to you is, is get in among that small group and make your life with them. Don't fool around with people who have a place for God. Love them. Honor them for who they are in your life, but don't, don't follow them. People that, have, that God's prominent in their life, that, that's good. That's better than just giving God a little place now and then. But they won't be faithful. They'll give in to temptation. Their lines of separation won't be near as far out from the world as they should be. Make your life with the people for whom God is preeminent in their life. They're learning what it means to walk with Jesus every day, to talk to Jesus in every hour, to pray over every decision, to want to be more like Him. That's who you want to be with.